Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon, which is privileged to present these community events, I'm delighted to welcome you here tonight. Thank you for coming out. Um, not on the nicest, nicest night weather-wise, so maybe you're happy to be indoors where it's warmer. Um, I always like to start uh, by asking how many people have never been to a Faith and Life event before? Oh, wonderful, excellent, good. Uh, well, special welcome to all of you. Uh, this is the 17th year, we're actually coming to the end of the 17th year of these events. Um, those of you who have been here before will know that we have hosted over the last 17 years, all kinds of people. Um, and that's sort of the point of the series, is to bring in uh, Christians who are out in the world doing normal, everyday stuff. So we've had lawyers, we've had politicians, we've had um, journalists, we've had scientists, we've had professors, we've had some theologians, although not many theologians. We've had artists, we've had musicians. As I think back over the 17 years, I know that we've had at least one doctor and maybe a couple doctors. Uh, but tonight we are delighted to add to that list. When I think of our speaker tonight, I've been reflecting on what I should say about him, and honestly the word that comes to mind is an old-fashioned word, but I think it applies. The word is polymath. Uh, those of you who know that word, its etymology will know it means much learning, or wide learning. Poly, much, uh, math is a Greek word for learning. Um, Todd is a doctor first and foremost. He's a gifted internist. He's also a teacher of doctors. Um, he does so much I have to look at my notes actually. He's an uh, assistant professor of clinical medicine at the University of Minnesota. This is a long one. He's the director of clinical outpatient education at Abbott Northwestern's internal medicine residency program. Did I get that right? All right. He's also an adjunct professor at St. John's where he teaches largely pre-med students. In addition to that, though, he's also a gifted blogger and writer, um, and so much so that uh, an organization called Word on Fire Ministries, which is a Catholic ministry that was started a long time ago by Bishop Robert Barron, when it began its quarterly journal, uh, Evangel Evangelization and Culture, it actually tapped Todd to be the editor of it. And that's not a job that most doctors would do, just to give you a, a to be clear about that. Um, if that doesn't mean much to you, and it may not, I will tell you that Bishop Robert Barron, who's behind uh, Word and World, no, what, um, Word on Fire, Word on Fire, thank you, um, is the second most followed uh, Catholic thinker on social media behind only one other person. You might be able to guess who it is. The Pope, that's right. And so I assume Bishop Robert Barron knows what he's doing and we asked Todd to do this. Um, he was very wise. Um, I do like also to tell uh, some story that's off of the uh, normal bio of our speakers. And I was chatting with Todd about this earlier, or texting him earlier. He tells the story, oh by the way, he's an expert on um, leaders of the 20th century. So he's an expert in World War I, World War II. He's done a lot of speaking and teaching about that. And in his first ever speaking gig for that, which I think he said he spent about 150 or 200 hours preparing for, he got the payment for it. And he called after looking at the check to just, he had a question about it, and he called the organizer and said, just want to make sure that that was correct. And she looked at her records and she, she said, 
yeah, all $15 are there. Um, thanks to the generosity of this series sponsors, I'm happy to report we are paying Todd more than $15 tonight. Um, he did want to also say that his most important vocation is as a father and husband, and I know he's a very good one because I'm also delighted to say that he's a dear friend of mine. Will you welcome Dr. Todd Warner? Well, thank you, Tim, <clears throat> and thank you all for coming out. It's very, uh, it's wonderful to see such a full house tonight. And uh, I said to Tim, I said, I hope that it's not a full house because you thought I was going to give a debriefing on the coronavirus. But, but I will, f I will field any questions you might have uh, about that at the end. Um, thank you. You know, uh, I, for years, I, I've enjoyed the many different facets of uh, this lecture series, you know, so I, I live just down the road. So it's whenever Tim has one of these uh, presentations going on, um, I, I'm just excited. He, he'll let me know about it. We make it when we can. And it's just been so many unique and stimulating voices that we've had over these many years. And so I don't know, I don't know what, that many people totally appreciate what a gem this series is. And if I may say so, what a gem Tim is. So um, just a big props to you on that, Tim. I also want to give you this. I want to admit that my first encounter with Tim uh, involved him teaching on the notion of moral relativism. And when he explained it to me, be, he began with the phrase, Todd, let's say I was going to come and chop off your head. And once I heard that, I thought, I'm really going to like this guy. <laughs> so Tim, you have been a dear friend. You've been a wonderful spiritual mentor to me and I think to so many people who attend here. Uh, so thank you for your leadership and for your kindness. Let me begin tonight's talk by saying that medicine touches us all. Whether we are practitioners or patients, there's little that we spend more money on or more time worrying about than our health. High blood pressure, diabetes, cancer and heart attacks, arthritis, pneumonia, strep throat, influenza, and now, of course, the coronavirus. Shots and medications, wellness exams and surgeries, births and deaths, Saint Elsewhere and Grey's Anatomy. Get well cards and caring bridge sites, baby showers and signatures on casts, fundraisers and funerals all emanate from our health and from our healing, our illness and our dying. But I think we all sense that there is a little problem with the state of medicine as we know it right now, isn't there? I mean, I think you can sense it and so can I. You see, in an age of medical miracles and towering hospitals, primary care and subspecialists, MRIs and angiograms, genetic testing and robot surgery, medicine has simultaneously seemed to have lost a little bit of its way. And so tonight I would like to tell you what I have discovered after more than 20 years of practice and countless hours of teaching undergraduates, medical students, and residents. I'd like to tell you this in three parts similar to, the, to how a physician approaches a patient coming in with a problem. And those three parts, describing how the field of medicine lost its way and how we can find our way back, are told as follows. First, the presentation. What's wrong? Second, the diagnosis, to ferret that further. And third is the treatment. But before I begin, I want to let you in on a little secret, kind of a spoiler of sorts. The problem with medicine is not with medicine alone. In fact, it is a problem that permeates society 
and across many fields. It is buried in our human condition. Some of what I say, maybe a lot of what I say tonight, you will find familiar, and I think you'll think applies to you as well. And the answer to what ails medicine does not begin with a policy, a movement, a law, or an ideology that changes the system. It begins with you and begins with me. So let's begin. Part one, the presentation. Several years ago, a short essay was penned by a first-year internal medicine resident named Sonia Singh. The essay was called Morning Report. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, tr with the track that a person goes through to become a doctor, you have your four years of undergraduate, generally, you have four years of medical school, and then you have residency, okay? Residency is the incredibly time-intensive, stressful training the doctors undergo after medical school, they get their licensure, and then they go into independent practice. Residency generally ranges from three to eight years in duration. And as every resident knows, morning report is the mandatory daily conference run by an attending physician or chief resident to discuss a case and ask difficult questions of anxious residents. Now residents spend the beginning of the day before morning report frantically racing around doing rounds. They're going from patient to hospitalized patient. Any of you have been hospitalized and you had a residency, you, you were a part of this. They, ran, they run from patient to hospitalized patients to ask questions, <clears throat> perform an exam, review the labs, look at the imaging, discuss with nurses and families so they can update senior residents and staff as well as keep the patient's care moving forward. With the ticking clock, the countless conversations, the innumerable pages, and the incessant flights of stairs climbed, Dr. Sonia Singh, in her essay, unfolds her story. It is 9.55 a.m., and it's five minutes before morning report. This is her, these are her words. It's 9.55, and you have one patient left, Ms. T. You might actually make it to morning report on time if you keep things brief. You see, Ms. T is your favorite patient. She's a retired nurse, admitted four days ago with painless jaundice, and a pancreatic mass. She knows what that means. She greets you every morning with warm, motherly eyes. She's seen hundreds of frazzled interns pass through these halls in 35 years in the wards. They get younger every year, she jokes whenever a new doctor comes in. She humors you as you robotically run through your routine questions and exam. You try to wrap things up by summarizing the day's plan. We're hoping to have the preliminary biopsy results back this afternoon, and then we can figure out our next steps. You trail off as her eyes start to glisten with tears. You instinctively reach for her hand. It's 9.59, and you sit down on the edge of the bed. Over the past three hours, you've placed more than 50 orders, answered 17 pages, listened to 14 hearts and 28 lungs, talked to countless patients, nurses and residents, and social workers, but you realize that this is the only real doctoring you'll do today. These are the 60 seconds that will matter. You both sit in silence for a moment. Ms. T's lips tremble while you search for the right words. You tell her you're not sure you have them. She understands and says thank you. You feel your eyes welling up. Aren't you late for morning reports? Ms. T asks with a smile. You better get going. Now morning report runs from 10 to 11. The chief resident presents a mystery case and residents and interns are invited to ask and answer questions to hone their diagnostic and medical management skills. Some residents see it as an opportunity to show off their knowledge. You see it as a daily potential for public humiliation. 
When you arrive at 10.05, the case presentation is underway. A 29-year-old graduate student returns from India with fevers and diarrhea. You sit in the back of the room trying to be inconspicuous. You know there are slides of blood smears coming and you don't want to be tasked with interpreting them. You feel your pager go off again. It says, regarding Ms. T, preliminary pathology consistent with pancreatic adenocarcinoma, pancreatic cancer. You feel an ache in your chest. Is it heartburn or sorrow? You stare helplessly at your pager until the backlight goes dim. You slowly become aware that the chief resident has been saying your name. Dr. Singh, do you want to share your approach to fever and the returning traveler? Your mind goes blank. As 20 sets of eyes settle on you, you know this won't be pretty, that it will only confirm what others suspect and what you sometimes believe about yourself, that you aren't a good doctor. Taking a deep breath, you tell yourself what you learned today and what you wish you could tell every overworked, self-doubting, burned-out inter intern who comes after you. These are not the 60 seconds that matter. Now last month, in a weekly conference at my clinic that I run with fourth-year medical students and residents, I was getting acquainted with our eight new medical students. In the course of the conversation, I asked one how she decided on pediatrics, to which she answered, it was the, only, it was the one rotation I disliked the least. <laughs> Whoa, so th that might need a little further explanation. What unfolded from this bright and delightful young woman was a parable of disillusionment. And it was all related to her medical education. Endless hours on what she perceived as unnecessary bookwork. Rotations with peers endlessly backbiting and jockeying for position. A sense of isolation, of being overwhelmed. A loss of direction, an encroaching depression. I'm not sure that if I had to do it all over again, she said, that I would. In fact, I know I wouldn't. As she said this, I saw a majority of heads nodding around the room. Off balance, I asked, how many of you would say that if you had the chance to do it all over again, you wouldn't have gone into medicine? Nearly everyone raised their hands. I asked, why didn't you leave earlier? You're now in your fourth and final year. To a person, they said, too much debt. In fact, one told me of his $370,000 in medical school debt alone. Others averaged $250,000 to $300,000 on top of undergraduate loans. They were overwhelmed, uncertain, indifferent, depressed, disheartened. This was the message that I heard. Now, to be fair, I, I've taught more students that are a little tired and a little bit cranky, they love what they're doing. But this group really jarred me. This experience prompted me to reinvestigate the grim statistics among physicians. And as you might guess, it's not encouraging. For doctors, suicide is among the highest, and I think I just saw an email the other day, it is the highest of all professions, and over twice that of general, the general population. Rates of alcoholism, drug addiction, divorce, depression, and burnout are much higher than most profess professions and the general population. Study after study reaffirms the epidemic of burnout, but they offer little solutions. Let's tweak resident hours. Let's hold a burnout conference that after the doctor returns from it, 
they're twice as behind from their inbox exploding on them. Instead of offering solutions, so much of the time it seems that the industry is interested in celebrating the problem. Recently, Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine pointed out the National Academy of Sciences 332-page consensus report on burnout among physicians. The Minnesota Hospital Association's three-year survey of 94 hospitals reaffirmed it, and the Mayo, the Mayo Clinic invented a physician well-being index, burnout assessment tool. Now, don't get me wrong. I, mean, I appreciate the publicity that this dire problem deserves. But I'm not sure we need 332 pages to tell you what I can tell you in 15 words. Too much is being done by too few in too little time for too long. I'm going to say that again. Too much is being done by too few in too little time for too long. And the soul of why we are doing medicine is getting lost in the process. And I would say this problem translates, not, it's, not just, it's not just constrained to practicing as a physician, it's other healing professions, physical therapists, occupational therapists, pharmacists, nurses, and I would argue it's across other fields, and uh, education, the service industries, law, the clergy, and many others. Again, too much is being done by too few in too little time for too long. This is not what people signed up for. Of the myriad reasons people go into medicine and into the larger healing professions, the most enduring reason is the fulfilling call to help others in need. When I decided to go into medicine, I knew that I had to answer yes to three indispensable questions. And these questions, I would argue, are questions that everyone, because I'm biased because I think I have the greatest wisdom, Everyone should ask themselves these three questions when you're choosing your calling in life or you're answering a calling in life. First, can I survive on it? Because if you can't pay the bills, you're not going to be doing that. That's the first question. Second of all is, will I enjoy it? If you're not passionate about it, you won't be very good at it. And third of all, is it reflective of my values? Will it give my life meaning? So that when I am old and reflecting back on my life, I look back and said, yes, it was a life well-lived. It was an endeavor that was worthy of my time and energy. While I feel very blessed to have been able to answer yes to these questions, it didn't prepare me for the stress and the complexity of the balancing acts that medicine would demand of me. <clears throat> Here's where I would like to move into part two of my talk, and that's the diagnosis of the true problem. Over 20 years of clinical practice, I've discovered something that has helped me to better understand what is going wrong. The practice of medicine has increasingly become a delicate series of balancing acts. Four that I could pick up on and we'll talk about briefly tonight. The first is a balance between efficiency and intentionality. Efficiency and intentionality. We all have work to get done and only so much time to do it. As such, we have become masters of efficiency with tight schedules, multitasking habits, early mornings, and late nights. As my father would say with his homespun wisdom, we are forever trying to put 10 pounds of manure into a five-pound can, and we can't do it. Now, years later, I reflected, why are you putting manure into a can, which is another faith in life talk. <laughs> but we sometimes are so good at getting things done 
that we forget why we are doing them in the first place. Our daily work is not designed to be a race after which we collapse on the couch, eat chips, and watch Netflix. Somehow we've let the how of our lives eclipse the why. Intentionality means to be here now. It is the corrective of the hyper-efficient world we live in. And we're all terrible at this. We're terrible at being here now. I can have a patient who has an IQ of 60 that I walk into the room and they can tell in 30 seconds if I'm there or not. They can tell if I'm stuck on the last patient, anticipating the next patient, or just fundamentally distracted. Intentionality means be here now. We shouldn't ruminate on the past. We should reflect on it. We shouldn't obsess about the future. We should plan for it, but we should be here now. When I was a fourth grader, Miss Duffy, with a gray shock of hair and bright red lipstick and a limp from polio, which lets you know how old I am, she asked all of her fourth grade kids to memorize and recite on one specified day, Robert Frost stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Now, how many of you know that one? Did any of you have Mrs. Duffy? Because <laughs> I'll tell you, I was sweating bullets for weeks. On a prescribed day, she had 28 kids in Mason City, Iowa's Jefferson Elementary School standing by the side of their desk, one at a time, standing up and reciting 16 lines from Stopping by Woods on Snowy Evening. And as a fourth grader, I listened to that and I said, here's a guy taking a ride into the woods, stopping and then riding again, and you're making me sweat about this for several weeks? I don't get it. But if you recall, and if you want to quietly join me, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. You see, it wasn't until I was really stressed on a late night moonlighting, and I had three patients to admit, it was two in the morning, I had a page coming in from a specialist, I had a bunch of pagers on that were all going off, that who should come into my mind but Robert Frost's man in the middle of the night on a horse? And what was he doing? He was telling that horse who was saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, shaking his harness bells, and he said, I'm going to stop for a minute here. And all of a sudden, he got lost in the deep, dark woods. He heard, he felt and heard the easy wind. He could see the downy flake. You know when it's so quiet, you can hear the snow land? That's where he was. He still had miles to go before he slept. He still had promises to keep. And he went on. But for that moment, he was lost in wonder. That, my friends, is intentionality. And it's moments long. And if we don't take the moments to recover, we'll never make it to the end of the journey. It is difficult to listen. It is difficult to be patient, to see what is before your eyes while it's still there. My daughter is sitting right over there, and I can't believe how big she's gotten so fast. And I've been watching her and telling her, don't grow so fast, but she keeps on growing. 
William Olzer, one of the iconic doctors who put Johns Hopkins, on the, uh, John, Johns Hopkins on the map, said, think not about the amount to be accomplished, the difficulties to be overcome, or the end to be attained, but set earnestly at that little task at your elbow, letting that be sufficient for the day. Being intentional means giving a damn about the task in front of you and the person before you. To be intentional while being efficient is a very difficult balancing act. That's our first balancing act. The second balancing act is equanimity and empathy. Now, when I first heard the word equanimity, I went to the, the dictionary, because I wasn't sure what it was. Equanimity is an evenness of temper, a coolness under pressure. So how many of you have ever heard or said this? He's a terrific surgeon, but he has a terrible bedside manner. <laughs> I'm not trying to pick on surgeons, because there's internists and pediatricians and all that. We want someone who is good. We want someone who is cool under pressure, who gets the job done. But does that mean that they have to be unlikable and seem uncaring? Once again, the iconic Dr. William Osler was a, an extraordinary diagnostician. But you know what else? He was a really good guy. When he left his post at Penn to go to Johns Hopkins, he left these parting words with the graduates. He said, cultivate such a judicious measure of obtuseness, of remove, as will enable you to meet the ups and downs of practice with firmness and courage without, at the same time, hardening the human heart by which we live. How do I manage the stressful stuff without becoming a puddle? And yet, if I'm that tough, how do I, how do I prevent myself from not caring anymore? See that balancing act? You must, in medicine, as a physician, you must be able to run a code where there's 20 people in a room, a person dying, and you're in charge. You must be able to break bad news. You must be able to engage the angry patient with equanimity, with an evenness of temper, without becoming an ice man or an ice woman devoid of empathy. To have equanimity balanced with empathy is a very difficult balancing act. That's the second balancing act. The third of four third balancing act is between what I call the algorithm and informed intuition. T.S. Eliot in Courses from the Rock wrote this, where is the life we have lost in living? Where's the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where's the knowledge we have lost in information? I look at the students we have and I say, look, I said, you know, I didn't have this at the beginning of my practice. Think, think about all the information we have in this. But that information does not equate knowledge in my head. So only a certain portion of this is going to make it into my brain as knowledge. But I'll tell you something else that we forget about. That knowledge in my head does not equate to wisdom, the wise application of that knowledge. That's where Eliot says, where's the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where's the knowledge we have lost in information? Somehow in the crush of time to master a mountain of information, and an interest in streamlining medical workups, we have run the risk of forgetting how to think. While sloppy thinking and needless testing should be avoided, medicine should not be reduced to a one-size-fits-all cookbook approach. It is an art, a craft in the truest sense of the word. And to become good at a craft, we must learn from good studies, but also from wise mentors who practice with wisdom and insight that is rooted in authentic experience. You know, Leonardo da Vinci had a lot of apprentices when he was an artist. 
And the first thing he didn't say to the apprentice was, hey, come on up here, help me finish the Mona Lisa. Leonardo was all about forming his apprentices. You know what they did for the first year or two? They mixed paints. Here's how you make the colors. In time, you will put the brush to the canvas, but not yet. You need to grow in your wisdom. One of the pet peeves I have sometimes when, when, when we take so many surveys from students about what they like and don't like about what we're teaching is we're asking somebody who doesn't know how to be formed to tell us how to be formed. At some point, we have to say somebody has a little bit more experience than you do and can bestow upon you wisdom. They can form you even beyond educating you. But you, the neophyte amateur student who may have a lot of great ideas, and let's talk about them, but you don't necessarily know what you're talking about all the time. Maybe even not most of the time. So be patient and have, this is also goes with, well, I won't say it, but anyway. <laughs> and the thing also was that Leonardo did not write a white paper and hand it to his, his apprentice says, read this and you'll learn all about how to be like me. It was by the elbow, mentoring. With the sheer overload of information and medicine, we must not forget how to think. We must strive not only to be smart, but to be wise. We must have humility and blend our book knowledge with common sense, with informed intuition, with experience, and with finesse. The algorithm is a fine, rough guide, but it doesn't explain you, and it doesn't explain me. We are greater than the sum of our parts. To navigate the algorithm with informed intuition is a difficult balancing act. We move now into our final balancing act that I learned about in my 20 years of practice. Doing what you have to do versus doing what you ought to do. Lord John Fletcher Milton, he, uh, he was a British lord. He, in 1924, he gave a speech, and I give this speech to so many of my medical students and residents, and it's so fun to talk to them about this. He said, he said there's two big spheres we have in our lives, the sphere of choice and the sphere of law. The sphere of choice is the area that tells you, that, that allows you to choose what you want to do, who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, what God you will worship, if you worship at all what kind of uh, career path you're going to choose. That is granted you have a free society, okay? Choice. And over here in the sphere of law is the, is this the realm of things that you are prevented from doing or that you have to do. Got to pay your taxes. Got to have a driver's license. Can't vandalize. Don't go rifling through your neighbor's house when they're gone. It won't go well. Between choice or autonomy and law is this big middle area. And you know what fills in that big middle area? His manners, his mores, his civility, his chivalry. It's what Lord Fletcher, Lord Moulton says is obedience to the unenforceable. Doing that which you ought to do, even though you don't have to do it. And what he says is, 100 years ago now, so think about how much this applies today and how much it's gotten out of control. The more you have people thumping their chest and saying, you're not going to tell me what to do. This is the way I'm going to do it. This is my right. I'm going to have it. And many of those, there's many arguments to be made about that. But some, not so much. That realm gets bigger and bigger and bigger. My rights, my rights, my rights, my rights. In response, you have the law that says, oh, no, you're not going to do that. We're going to make you do this. You better watch out because we can make you do that too. And law gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. What gets squeezed out in the middle? The things that we would naturally do because it's right because it's civil, 
because we're golden ruling it. We're doing unto our others as we would have them do unto us. And that gets squeezed out. There is an ought. Let's think about that. If we believe in God, there is a standard. If we don't believe in God, the standard is power. If you have the power, you dictate the rules. You get overthrown, the new power, then they dictate the rules. But if there's a God, there is a standard above all. There is an ought. So you might say, well, how, how, so tell me how this relates to teaching medical students and residents. So I say, you have a 52, I say to the students, I say, oh, you have a 52-year-old woman who's coming in to see you, and she's had headaches, very bad headaches for the last three months. She's got three kids. She's a professional. She's worried. She sees you on a Friday about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, actually 1 o'clock in the afternoon. She thinks she has a brain tumor. So you sit and talk to her. You get a good history and you do a good exam, including a neuro exam, and you're trying to see, is this a migraine component to this, or is this tension headaches or chronic daily headaches? But there's some aspects about her age and her story that make you a little bit concerned, and you say, you know what we're gonna do is we're gonna MRI of your brain. She says, thank you, and you say, you know, I'll get back to you when the results come, and then we'll follow up, uh, we'll follow up next week, and we'll get a plan if we have to neurology, if we try this medication, we'll, we'll figure things out. Amazingly, she gets in for an MRI that afternoon, and you're, driving off to the Twins game. It was last year's Twins, not maybe several years ago Twins. <laughs> so you want to get there, right? You're already running late, the, the pager goes off, the radiologist's on the line, and the radiologist tells you the MRI is normal. Well, that's great. I mean, she still has headaches, she's still got to figure out how to help her with her pain, but that's great. And I say to the students, I said, so you're done, right? And they all kind of look at me. And then slowly they shake their head. I said, well, why are you shaking your head? You got the patient in, you got a good history, you did a good exam, you did an imaging study, the image study is normal, you got a follow-up plan, you can feel good, go enjoy the game, have a beer, root on the twins, what's the matter? And then one, one speaks up and says, you gotta call her. You gotta call her and tell her the results. And you call and you tell that patient results, and she knows you're busy, but the sigh of relief of three months worrying that she has a brain tumor, that she has a normal MRI, has given her a new lease on life. It has made the rest of the weekend better. We could have written a letter that would get to her a week from now. I could have had my nurse call her on Monday. But the bottom line is, this is one of those things. And by the way, I, we can't call every patient on every test. But there's sometimes you're like, this matters. This patient's going to be worried about this. Let's get back to them. There is an ought. It's not always what you want to do. It's not always what you need to do. It's what you ought to do. When one of my residents read this piece, he nodded his head. His name is Bjorn. As you might imagine, Bjorn is Scandinavian, and his mother spoke fluent Danish to him. I do not speak fluent Danish, but I'm about to quote Danish. I know there's probably Scandinavians out there, so forgive me. But Bjorn looked at me, and he's, he's nodding his head. I said, why are you nodding your head? He says, just like my mother always used to say, Det er det mangor. And I said, what? And he said, det er det mangor. He said, my mom always used to say that to me whenever I had to write a thank you note. Or whenever I, she asked me to go help a neighbor who had a problem and, and it was some, something she wanted me to do. And I was kind of grumbling. I don't want to go do it. Det er det mangor meant it is what is done. You just do it. Why? Because you ought to. That's why. Winston Churchill once reminded the English during the darkest days of war in 1940, it, it's not enough that we do our best. Sometimes you must do what is required. 
Sometimes we must do what we ought to do, even though we don't think it's physically or humanly possible. But this takes time and discernment and sacrifice. Doing what you have to do, juxtaposed against doing what you ought to do, is a difficult balancing act. I've talked about the four balancing acts. The tension that arises out of balancing these variables in the practice of medicine and in life is very hard. It creates great stress. Great stress. Efficiency and intentionality, getting the day's work done but having meaning while you do it. Equanimity and empathy, having the, the composure to deal with stressful things but not losing your heart in the process. The algorithm and informed intuition, having a path to streamline care but at the same time individualizing the care for the person in front of you because they're different than the masses. And doing what you have to do versus doing what you ought to do. And we're hopefully doing what we ought to do more and more and more. But because we have a difficult time balancing this in the small amount of time, remember 10 pounds of manure in a five pound can, we in medicine and we in the modern world have lost our way. So the question is, how do we solve this? So now we move into part three of the talk, the treatment. Of course there are treatments for the system, the system. Give clinicians more time with their patients. I'm a big fan of that one. Revamp the electronic medical record. Hire more staff. Decrease the cost of education. Return the humanities to the field of medicine. Elect this politician, fire that politician, and on and on and on. There's, there's no end to the suggestions about how to make the system of medicine better. But to be honest with you, and in truth, the treatment starts with you and it starts with me. The first question we in this field, and I would argue in any other field that you are from, we need to ask ourselves is, is what I am pursuing, is what I am showing up every single day for, is it a vocation, is it a calling, or is it just a job? Is it something that gives meaning to my life and meaning to the lives of those I touch, or am I some half-naked guy chained to an oar on a Viking ship with some guy up front just banging the drum until the poor day that I fall dead. Is that, if that's what it is, that's a sad thing. If it's just a job, then just phone it in. Eek by, collect your check and retire. I'm sorry for you. But if it's a calling, then it's something so very much more. It is a gift from God. It is worthy to be wrestled with worthy to be reformed, worthy to suffer through, worthy to derive a deeper spiritual sense of the struggle. In The Road to Character, David Brooks writes about the two parts deep within each of us, called Adam 1 and Adam 2. And I just want to read you a little blurb, which I think, and I read this, I read this to the students. We each have Adam 1 and Adam 2 within us. Adam 1 is the career-oriented, ambitious side of our nature. I'm going to call Adam 1 resume Adam. Adam 1 is the external resume Adam. Adam 1 wants to build, create, produce, and discover things. He wants to have high status and win victories, which isn't necessarily bad. It's good to be, to be, to be striving, set goals, and achieve. Adam 2 is the internal Adam. We're going to call Adam 2 eulogy Adam. What they say at your funeral is not what they, they don't read your resume. They tell stories, right? Adam, too, wants to embody certain moral qualities. 
Adam II wants to have a serene inner character, a quiet but solid sense of right and wrong, not only to do good, but to be good. Adam II wants to love intimately, to sacrifice self in the service of others, to live in obedience to some transcendent truth, to have a cohesive inner soul that honors creation and one's own possibilities. While Adam I wants to conquer the world, Adam II wants to obey a calling to serve the world. While Adam I is creative and savors his own accomplishments, Adam II sometimes renounces worldly success and status for the sake of some sacred purpose. While Adam I asks how things work, Adam II asks why things exist and what ultimately we are here for. While Adam I wants to venture forth, Adam II wants to return to his roots and savor the warmth of a family meal. While Adam I's motto is success, Adam Adam II experiences life as a moral drama. His motto is charity, love, and redemption. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, which of these atoms are we most cultivating in our own lives? Which are, we, which are we cultivating in medicine? Which are we cultivating in the modern world? True, there should be a dynamic tension because there's virtues to both, obviously. But don't you sometimes think the resume Adam has somehow won the fight so much in our modern society? The resume Adam of accomplishment at the expense of the eulogy Adam of deeper meaning and true meaning? To be better healers, to be better people in the modern world, we need first to be healed. The broken needs to be made whole again. And notwithstanding heroic social movements and systemic fixes, I am convinced that the place where healing must first begin is in our own interior life. To be good outward, we must first be good inward. And it has been my Catholic faith that has brought me to this better place. So what is the treatment? At least what is the beginning of treatment for what goes wrong in medicine? What has gone wrong, if you ask me, in the modern world. It's not a grand plan. It's not a platform. It's not a policy. It starts within the depths of you and within the depths of me. And it's something I've learned from my faith. So here are four humble suggestions. First, we must just take time. We need time to heal. We blow past the injunction by God to be still and know that I am God. We're terrible at being still. Blaise Pascal once said, most of the world's miseries arise from the fact that a man cannot sit quietly in a room by himself. Kind of true, right? We can't say that we don't have the time to do this. It comes in moments. Robert Frost, as I said, when he composed Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, wasn't just talking about that ride on a horse carriage. He was talking about stopping and thinking, even though he had miles to go before he slept and promises to keep, and he reflected for only a moment. Here's an interesting fact about that poem, by the way. I really like that poem. And even though I railed quietly in the depths of my soul at Mrs. Duffy, I really thank her to this very day for that. Robert Frost spent all night. You thought that only doctors and, and all, all sorts of other people pulled all-nighters. Poets sometimes pull all-nighters. And Robert Frost spent all night writing a poem called New Hampshire. And he thought it was going to be his magnum opus. And he got done, and he dusted his hands, and he went, and it's June day, June day. Dusted his hands, he went and sat on the porch, got a cup of coffee, and within five minutes, he banged out, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Now, have any of you ever memorized or read New Hampshire? <laughs> 
It's amazing what inspiration can do for you and how fast it can come if you only take time. If you've ever read The Lake Isle of Innisfree from William Butler Yeats, another beautiful one that talks about an idyllic cabin scene on this island. And you might say, where did, where did that come from or why do I even care? William Butler Yeats was a 24-year-old disgruntled, dissatisfied kid or young man on Fleet Street in London, as far away from a cabin or a lake as possible. He didn't know where he was going or what he was doing with his life. And as he was walking and mulling over his purpose, he heard the tinkling of water coming from behind a storefront. He went over to that storefront, looked in there, and there was a little fountain with a, turn, a turnstile wheel. And instantly he was transported back to Innisfree, his childhood cabin. And if you look at William, Buster Yates, William Butler Yeats' end of his poem, he says, I will arise and go now. For always night and day, I will hear water lapping with low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in my deep heart's core. Remember that great vacation you took, the one you loved, you have so many good memories from? You've spent more time in that place in your mind, in memories, than you ever physically spent there. William Butler Yeats nursed himself through a tough time in his life by momentarily remembering a childhood place of solace. Time, it comes in moments. Healing comes in moments if we only allow ourselves to experience them. We must take time. Second suggestion, we must find solitude. We need to be alone. We need to be away from the crush of the demands so we can find ourselves again. Look at how often Christ withdrew to pray. Pope Benedict XVI once observed, we are no longer able to hear God. There are too many frequencies filling our ears. There is a rather edgy comedian named Louis C.K. He got into some trouble, but here's a story that I think, let's not excuse him, but let's talk about it. This is a great story. Louis C.K. was on a late night show, and the late night show host asked him, uh, does your daughter, uh, you have a daughter, I understand. Yes, I do, and she's how old? 13. Does your daughter have a phone? And he says, no. He says, I want my daughter to be sad. And everybody laughed, because obviously he's, he's making a joke about tormenting his daughter. And he said, no, and this is a comedian, not, not meant for deep moments. He said, let me explain. He said, you see, uh, not too long ago, I was driving the car and I was listening to, listening to music and along came a song from Bruce Springsteen. And something about that song triggered something in me about a memory that was very painful, something that I'd gone through that I never really dealt with. It was very, very hard. And my instant instinct, think about ourselves, my instant instinct was to grab my phone and call somebody was to turn the channel, was to move past that emotion. But you know what I did? I restrained myself from doing that. I, I literally allowed that emotion to wash over me, as hard as it was. And I literally pulled the car over and I wept. And he says, it was a very hard thing to go through, it was very painful, but because I allowed myself to experience the pain I went through, I'm at a better place with it nowadays. And so, I truly mean it when I say I want my daughter to be sad. Because if I allow her and she allows herself sometimes to be sad, she'll work through things and arrive at a better place on the other side as opposed to getting stunted by distraction. George Bernanot, the French Catholic writer, would say, we risk becoming stumps of men when we're meant to be whole. 
Being alone and being quiet is the beginning of healing. It's the beginning of a deep interiority. The third suggestion, we must pray. C.S. Lewis once observed, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Christ exhorts us to ask, to seek, to knock. And when the stressed and overburdened Martha, and we got a lot of Marthas, I bet, in this room. I'm a Martha. When Martha resents Mary sitting and listening at Jesus' feet, Christ says to her, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things, but there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. Don't you just love that? Only one thing. As my Latin-speaking daughter would say, unum necessarium. Prayer acknowledges the mysterious and the ineffable. It connects us with the wondrous and the benevolent. It acknowledges a transcendence that we know is there, but that the world seeks to shut out with noise and schedules and distraction. The great G.K. Chesterton, when he converted to Catholicism, dashed home and he penned this poem that struck him about his experience of faith in an overbusy and overconfident world. The sages, he writes, the sages, the wise men, have a hundred maps to give. They trace their crawling cosmos like a tree. They rattle reason out through many a sieve that stores the sand and lets the gold go free. And all these things are less than dust to me because my name is Lazarus and I live. We must pray. And finally, we must choose to be intentional. We must fight to be here now. We must love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and all our mind, and love our neighbor as ourself. But we don't do that by looking over our shoulder. We don't look that, do that by looking past the person in front of us. As Thomas Carlyle once said, our main business is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies clearly at hand. There's a great story about William Osler late at night after he had a hard day working as a doc at Johns Hopkins. He'd walk through the tough and mean streets of Baltimore, and he'd come across all sorts of broken down people, derelicts, the homeless. And one time he, he came across this 19-year-old woman sitting against a brick wall in the street, cradling her three-year-old daughter in her arms. Her daughter was sick. William in his suit crouches down and he feels her head and he looks her over and he stands up and reaches into his pocket, pulls some money out and he waves down a carriage. And the carriage comes up and he gives money, puts money into the cab driver's hand, helps the mother and the daughter into the, into the cab. Um, but before he lets her go, he writes, scribbles something on a note, hands it to the mother, hits the side of the carriage and says, take him to Hopkins. When the carriage arrives, it arrives into the early, late 1800s version of an ambulance bay, the residents are there to receive this woman and her daughter. And they help, the, help her out and help the daughter out, and they bring her in, and they unfold the note, and it's, it's a note of a similar hand with similar words. And the note says, this is one of Mrs. Osler's youngest. Please take care of her until I can see her in the morning. And then William Osler would come 
the next day and round on both of them if they needed it, day after day. Work on a safe disposition so they could be in a place other than on the street and totally cover the cost. And Ozer did this over and over again on his night, night walk home from Johns Hopkins Hospital. He said no doctor should ever worry about the fees which were not paid because they would be credited to his account in heaven. The state of modern medicine, in fact, the state of the modern world, requires us to correct the imbalance in our work as well as in our soul. We must take time. We must find solitude. We must pray. We must be intentional. It is essential to do those things so that we may live our vocation and not just do our job. As I began this talk, I want to return to some of the, what I said at the very beginning. The problem with medicine is not with medicine alone. In fact, it is a problem that permeates society and many fields. It is buried in our human condition. And the answer to what ails medicine does not begin with a policy, a movement, a law, or an ideology to change the system. It begins with you, and it begins with me. I'm going to finish my talk with uh, a story I just love about a pastor. Not a pastor you know, but a good pastor also. A pastor who was struggling a little bit with, with membership in his parish, with enthusiasm in his parish. And so he spent a great deal of time researching and tr trying to find a program to purchase and to unveil with, with the, uh, uh, for the, uh, the, the congregation. And so he went through the process of looking at which one would work, and it's got kickoffs, and it's got a kickoff dinner, and it's got programs to have, and so on. And the long and the short of it is that he spent all this time, he spent parish money, he's very excited, and the reception at the kickoff was tepid, and the attendance at the dinner was meager. And so this pastor walked away from that situation, still, still a pastor, but wondering if he's making a difference. Wondering if, 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 if it really matters, if he's really, is he presiding over a dying congregation or is he truly leading people home? And so this is where we pick up from our writer, Michael Lindvall. And this is the pastor speaking. I couldn't abide my office the next Tuesday morning. I just, he needed to be away from the church. So I went to get my hair cut. The town's barber's name is Harry. He's about 70, a chatty type with a repertoire of stale barber jokes. No pension, I suppose, so he keeps cutting hair. He says he's Roman Catholic, but I don't think he's been to church for years. He starts every one of my haircuts with, I'm Catholic, but I think he says that, so I won't ask him to come to church. <laughs> Harry asked what kind of things ministers did on the other six days of the week. He wasn't teasing. It was an honest question. I talked about meetings and hospital visits and counseling with pe people who had problems to talk over. Something I said touched a nerve in Harry, and he started to talk. He talked about being a kid and what a pain it was. He started to talk about his father, whom he called my old man. The 70-year-old was calling his father old man. My haircut was done. We were alone in the shop, a scissors in one hand and a comb in the other, and he was resting both of them on my shoulders as he talked. He talked about his, how his old man mercilessly beat him and his mother most every Saturday night. He talked about how afraid he was, about how much he loved and hated his father. 
He said he never told anybody about this before, not in 60 years. His mother, he said, carried the secret to her grave. Nobody had ever guessed. We were both facing the big barbershop mirror. His eyes were reddening. We looked at each other in the mirror in a way we could not have face to face. I reached to my shoulders and held his hands and I said something about when you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean you are saying that what they did was all right. That evening I had a meeting at church but got home fairly early. Annie said that the kids were waiting up for me and would be wanting their, wanting their story and kisses. I was exhausted. I would much sooner have dropped myself in front of the television, but I went upstairs and found two little peanuts fighting sleep. They had the book ready, a slip of yellow construction paper marking the spot where we had stopped reading the night before, and so I read chapter six of Ramona the Pest. They fell asleep before it ended. I kissed them both and sat at the edge of the bed for a moment and said their prayers for them. And sitting there, it came to me that of all the meetings I had attended in the last few days, of all the sermons I'd preached, of all the programs I'd introduced or tried to introduce, the most important things I had done in all my busyness were to touch Harry the Barber's hands and to read chapter six of Ramona the Pest. These were the important things. Not because the other things were unimportant, they were important because the mark a man or a woman makes on this world is most often a trail of faithful love and quiet mercies and unknown kindnesses. At the beginning of this talk, we talked about two very different 60-second time frames for Sonia Singh. One was a moment of deep humiliation in front of her peers when she was caught flat-footed not being able to answer a question that she felt she could have answered under different circumstances. And the other 60 seconds were, were a, a sheer moment of transcendence. Um, you would never put on a resume but it doesn't minimize the importance that you made in that 60 seconds to the life of somebody else. And we end this talk with the fact that sometimes our grandest of plans flop, but the little things we did, the holding of the hands of a person, a man, admitting something he admitted to nobody else, and maybe for that moment, found a moment of solace, a sense of redemptive mercy, and also that sweetness of sitting next to your children as they fall asleep in that dreamy, lovely slumber, and then you pray for them. At the end of the day, you guys, the problem with medicine, the problem with the modern world, it's simply that we sometimes have forgotten about God and how we're supposed to treat him and others. And so I would just ask that we all kind of remind ourselves of that, starting right now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Um, he's going to take some questions in a moment, but we're going to let him rest his voice. Uh, be thinking of questions you may want to ask him, maybe even about the coronavirus. Um, there's a mic to my right and to my left, uh, but a couple of notes from me first of all. Um, first thing I want to say, and this is in your programs tonight, uh, a reminder about our next and final event for the 2019-2020 uh, series which features um, Coach Ryan Saunders. That's on May 14th. Um, 
I will confess I am not a huge basketball follower, but I understand that our Timberwolves are not doing as well as they might, so if nothing else, come and cheer him on then. Uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful young man, um, and I hope you'll join us. So again, May 14th, 7 o'clock. If you would like, by the way, to have a little preview of some of what he'll be talking about, um, I will commend to you um, the current issue of, of our quarterly magazine called Inspire, um, which has a, an interview with Coach Saunders. Um, I believe we have some additional copies on the uh, welcome counter as you entered on the west side of the church, so pick one of those up if you'd like. Um, if you do not currently get emails from us, or if you use social media, if you're not, uh, if you haven't liked our Facebook page, um, please do that so that you're aware of uh, future events. Uh, you can do both those things at uh, faithandlife.org. Um, and uh, tell other people about these events too. We're always anxious, again, we're delighted we have some new people here tonight. Um, I'm biased, but I think this is an amazing gift to the community. Uh, and we'd love for more people to be able to experience it. So please um, share news about it with other folks. Um, and then a few words of thanks. Uh, also in your program tonight, you have um, the a list, and I hope it is complete. We missed one person last time. I always feel terrible about that uh, uh, when we, we uh, fail to get this correct. But so many people and organizations make and have made this series possible from the beginning. Um, it allows us not only to pay people like Todd more than $15, um, but also, I mean, there are all, all, a whole lot of other costs associated with doing something like this and doing it well, printing and advertising among them. Um, we are so grateful to everyone who helps make this possible. As I've said many times, this is not a budget item of this congregation. It's paid entirely by the generosity of the folks and organizations uh, who are listed here. Um, I know many of them are, are with us tonight. I'm not going to call them out by name. I, I will do some of that at the last event. Um, but will you join me in thanking them for making these events possible? Um, I also want to thank Jeff Elstad, our wonderful musician. Um, As I've said before, Jeff has been at all of these events, save, I think, two over the last 17 years. So thank you, Jeff, for making them uh, more enjoyable to walk into and walk out of. And then a final word of thanks. Um, scheduling these events is sometimes complicated, um, and uh, there are limited dates that work and so forth. Tonight happens to be uh, not only the event of of Dr. Todd Warner for Faith and Life, but also my wife's birthday. Uh, so when we figured out a date that would work, I went to her and said, what do you think, do you mind? And of course she said yes, but now it's her birthday, and she loves Todd too, by the way. Uh, but anyway, she's here, where are you, Amy? Amy's over there, she's gonna hate that I'm doing this, but I'm not sure we've <laughs> ever done this before. But will you join me, her name is Amy, in singing happy birthday to Amy. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Amy, happy birthday to you.
he's becoming less and less a fan of birthdays as the years go by, but um, I picked up my son Andrew today from school and he said, did mom work today? And I said, well, yeah, she did. And he said, boy, birthdays get tough when you get older, huh? <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, let's take a few questions if you have them. We'll take uh, 10, 15 minutes, whatever we need. Um, but please do come to the mics. Uh, it'll make it easier for everyone to hear. Assuming there are some. I got things rolling. You have um, PharmDs, PhDs, MBAs running your organization. Um, I often think of my mother, who was an RN during World War II. She had, what, three years, I think, at Shadyside Hospital in Pittsburgh. And I think about her that nights that I was in ICU standing there talking with physicians, um, interns, about the mumbo-jumbo of medicine late at night, and I wonder, maybe that's what you need. Maybe what you need is more poets and more support willing to talk about the mumbo-jumbo of medicine in the middle of the night. Well said. <laughs> I will, I'll say, one thing I'll say to you is, is one of the things that I'm really trying to do, and it, it, it seems that it seems like it's gotten a good reception among the students at the at medical school and the students we have in our rotation is um, trying to, the, the problem you run into is when people get excessively turning medicine into a, a, a technical field. I mean, there's a lot of technical aspects to it, but it's also poetry, right? It's a field of stories. And so, what, so part of what we're teaching in, in addition to how to manage diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and people with rashes and, and heart failure, et cetera, is we're trying to say, you should be reading William Shakespeare. You should be reading Jane Austen. You've got to read Yeats and, and, and Frost and Maya Angelou and others because the enduring classics of the human tradition are classic in part because they speak about that which is universal, that transcends different cultures. And um, a Solzhenitsyn and a Chesterton and, and a, a Emily Dickinson have a lot to say about the human experience. And it's interesting because when these students come into the beginning of our rotation and realize they're going to be reading something by Robert Frost, at first they're like, do I have to read this? And then by the end of the rotation, it's almost like they've thawed a little bit. Because at the end of the day, they need to rediscover what it is they went into this field for. And it wasn't because I really am excited about drawing the maps of neuroanatomy on a, with a colored pencil. It's about, it's about every day you get up and every night you go to bed, you are trying to help somebody in everything you do, however imperfectly. And when you can do that, you can go to sleep, and yes, you sometimes stare at the ceiling late at night. Should I have done this? Could I have done that? Should I call this person early in the morning, et cetera? But at least you go to bed saying, God, I just did my damnedest. I did my, I did my best to help somebody. And if we can remind people of that, and I think patients are incredibly indulgent of us. They understand we're busy. We're pulled in a thousand different directions. I've been late in getting letters out to people and making the phone calls and so on, and I have the greatest patients in the world, some of which I see here tonight. So um, I, to your point, I do think that re-injecting that which humanizes into what is sometimes becoming a hyper-technical, inhuman field is, is one of the big parts of the solution. Thank you. Um, I'm Father Fain. I'm the Catholic priest for the Catholics at Fairview South Methodist Hospital for the last 35 years. One of the questions that I have, well, it's maybe not a question, but it is, um, 
As people get older, okay, all, all those of us who are over 60, 65, 70, the feeling of older people not being important enough. They're in the way. It's going to cost too much. And then sometimes when the explanation of what can we do for this elderly patient, sometimes I hear, whether it be family or doctors or say, explain, well, do you want us to beat on your chest? It, it, it's almost like you're, you're guiding the person to say, well, no, I don't want you to be on my chest. Yeah, we'll probably break a couple of ribs. No, no, I really don't want you to break a couple of ribs. Do, do you see where I'm going? Where it's almost guiding the patient, be it however old they are, we don't, you know, we don't want that to happen to you. Okay, it could, but the way they present it, yeah. it's like, well, gee, you know, I, I'm old and I'm weak and I'm just going to die anyway, so I might as well just give up. Right. And that's hard. Anyone out here who's over 60, 65, 70, 75, when those questions, how much can we do for them? It is true, there's only a certain limit. But how the family and how medicine talks to the patient, talks to the person, is so important you're right that you're not too old too weak or too whatever i don't know if you can address that. i think it's a great and obviously thank you for all the years that you've been doing what you've been doing because that's it's an essential what you've done is, is essential i think uh to so many people who are in need um i, I agree I, I i think the more i'm not trying to see, sound like a broken record but the more we are overly focused on getting the job done that's the thing about efficiency and intentionality the conversation about code status, about do not resuscitate, do not intubate, that's a very loaded conversation. And sometimes it's just, it's rushed through. And there is a little bit of the imposition of a doctor who's got three people lined up and you look like you got a lot of medical problems and do we really want to coach? And I'm not saying they're trying to, they believe in euthanasia, but I'm saying, I think, that, I think their intent is to say, really, if you're 88 years old and your heart stops and you have all these medical problems, We've seen it where people really go through the, a harsh resuscitative process and it's just terrible for everybody involved. But simultaneously, the conversation around, around you know, giving that person, first of all, recognizing the dignity they have, that whether you're zero to 110, you're valuable. I'll be brief about this, but I, one of the, one of the, um, one of the, the, the uh, stories I, I give to the students is, uh, we just talk about King Lear. How many of you have read King Lear? King Lear is a terrible tragedy. It's considered the greatest of all tragedies, greatest of Shakespeare's tragedy, greatest tragedy of Shakespeare's. But one of the things about King Lear, it's the story of a father who descends into feeling like he's worthless because his daughters abuse him because he's kind of a jerk. But they end up taking all that he has and taking him for granted. And he's ultimately rescued by a daughter who refused to do that to him. And even though it all ends very badly, tragedy, right? A lot of death. Even though it ends very badly, there's a moment where he gets reconciled, half naked, half crazed, in the middle of the wilderness with his life being pursued after him, and you have his one daughter who he banished because she wouldn't play his game, who loved him genuinely, coming back and reconciling with him, and there's a moment of absolute bliss and glee in the notion that I am valuable. And I, I think, guys, we, we, I, mean, I think we all know we live in a world so distracted that we don't look people in the eye anymore. When we ask, how are you doing, we don't wait for an answer. Mark Twain's famous line is said, I can live a whole month on one compliment. 
And there's people out there that are going months without one. And so part of, part of to where, I don't know where you went out there, but, but to, to, to what you're saying, I can't, I can't commend to you more what you're saying is the right way, which is let's take some time to recognize the story sitting in front of us, the narrative of the person sitting in front of us. We all know that, that there's times of wasting. We all know there's people to be seen. But the bottom line is that quiet dignity, that moment of mercy of just engaging can melt a lot of stuff away. And it can, it can recall that this is a vocation. It's not just a job. It's about dignity. It's not about utility. Hello. Hello. My name is Madeline, and I'm currently um, in the middle of a dental program at the University of Minnesota. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, I feel like when I, I, your talk really spoke to me, I wasn't expecting it to be like as relatable as it was to me and where I am in my life. Um, I guess my question is, when I started this program, I felt the call to like be in this program and do it and help people. But as time goes by, it's like the debt is overwhelming, like you were saying. And you just like begin to question all these things. Right. And I don't know, is it a calling still? Or is it just, I feel like there's too much pressure and I can't right. do it. So I don't know if you have any intake on that from all the med students. The first thing, the first thing I'll say is thank you for being vulnerable enough to say it. That's what I want to say. And second thing I'll say, you're not alone. That you're not alone. And that, you know what? It's Flannery O'Connor once said this. I'm going to butcher it. But she said, if you're away from the herd and the herd thinks you're crazy, maybe it's the herd that's crazy and you're the only normal one. <laughs> so the long and the short, I, I guess what I would say is, I, I'll tell you what, um, again, as a Catholic, a lot of... I'm Catholic too. So, so this will speak to you. There's a lot to be said. Holy Week for everybody. Let's just say that. Holy Week for everybody is profoundly transformative. It's very hard because it's about suffering. Lent, season of Lent. It's about suffering. It's about sacrifice. Dante's story of the Divine Comedy. You might remember this. I don't know if you've ever read the Divine Comedy. Dante is lost midway through, midway through life. He found himself lost on the forest wood and not sure where to go. He, I promise I'll get to your question. I promise you. <laughs> but he looks back and he says, I can go back, to the, and I go back on the path, but I could get devoured by ravenous beasts. And those are his old habits. But, if, but, but, but I don't want to go back to those old habits. I don't want to go back and get, go back to the mediocrity and everything like that. I want to go forward. And sure enough, who comes but Virgil, his favorite poet. And Virgil says, I can help you get to paradise, but you have to go through hell first. And what I want to try to say is, is I'll say, your, a calling is not undermined because it's hard. A calling is not undermined because, because there's, a, there's a certain amount of debt. And a calling should never be fully discerned as being the wrong path simply because what you're going through right now, because this is not life for you. Life will get better for you. I promise you, it will get better for you. But the one thing I'd say is, is own those feelings and, and gird yourself. The things I was saying, find those moments of time. Find some solitude. Pray the rosary. Find your way back to, back to faith. And then make, in the midst of what may be a vice of pressure of getting things done, make those moments crystallize of having a connection with each, each, each of the people you see. And I think what will happen with those things, at some point, we have to say, God, I think this is what you called me to do, but it stinks. <laughs> and and I got to trust you on this one. And believe it or not, God does this. He reels you in. 
and he'll show you the way. So I just want to counsel for you. I'm going to say, A, you're normal, probably super normal because you're introspective. B, you're smart as heck to be going through what you're going through. C, you're discerning in the right way. And D, have faith, be kind to yourself, and walk this walk forward. And I guarantee you, I really believe this. If you're open to it, the answers will start to come to you and you'll know what to do. But I think you're going to be a, you'll, you'll probably be a bang-up dentist. But get through the dark night of the soul. Why don't we? I know you. Hi, yeah, Todd. Why don't, why don't we uh, make this? Oh, oh, excuse me. Is there another person following on as well? I'll hang out so afterwards. We can do last too. question, but were you also going to ask one? Okay, so we'll I'll do make two this more. Quick. In fact, what you just said might even answer my question. I'm Carolyn Diamond, and I, he has been my primary physician for years. Um, he's fabulous. And I, How much do I, I owe you for that? <laughs> an extra half hour. <laughs> <laughs> Done. No, but I think about you a lot because you are an outstanding physician. You are a historian, an author, a teacher, a philosopher. And I have to ask you this. When do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I, I'm blushing. If I, if I, I, you're so nice to say that. I'm not worthy of, the, of that. Those nice comments. I will tell you, um, uh, I have. The, as, as, as Tim ended my introduction, the truth of the matter is, the greatest part of my life, outside of my faith, are my wife and my kids. Okay. And if I didn't have such wonderful, a wonderful wife, who's sitting right over there, and I think she's ducked her head down. And my daughters, one of which is here and the other is down at Eagle Bluff on a, on a retreat, um, to spend time with, to humanize me and everything, I wouldn't be able to do this. The second thing is, is um, I, I'll tell you what I've learned. If you want to do something differently that is answering to your calling, your answering is, 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 uh, is calling you, if you respond to it, God, I believe, opens doors. I cannot tell you the doors that have opened that have not been of my own accord. One opportunity opened and the next and the next. And I am honestly, I'm like, my dad would say, a pig in manure. I'm like rolling around, just loving it. I'm absolutely, there's a lot of manure things in my, I don't know why. No. But the long and the short of it, the long and the short of it is, is I, I think part of why I'm not burned out in medicine is because I can write, is because I can read, it's because I can spend time with my daughter, daughters and my wife, because I have a wonderful group of friends and, and, and a faith and so on. So I, I don't know, I think I don't sleep quite as much. Um, Carrie probably thinks I need to see somebody about that. But, um, but the long and the short is, I, would, I just want to say to everybody out there, if you feel called in a direction, follow it. Because it, it, the, the doors will start opening, and you will become more fully yourself. And when you're more fully yourself, you're a gift to everybody. I'm not saying I am, but I'm trying to be. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. All right. Last question. And by the way, if I can instruct all of you, um, Please do not applaud wildly after Todd answers this last question, because then I'm going to come up and say a final thanks, and then you can applaud wildly. All right? Please. As, as part of the clergy community in this area, I just want to thank you, because I, it, a big aha in my journey was that curing is not the same as healing. And uh, you're, it sounds in your journey that you're doing both. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to respond to that, Todd? Or not? Well, <laughs> how much time do we have? No, thank, thank you. I, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say this. Um, one of the things, internal medicine, as you know, is adult medicine, is adult primary care. And we see a lot of things that we can fix, and there are a lot of things we help people to live with. 
And I'll say, if you liken it to a person's spiritual journey, a lot of what I do and what my colleagues do, we try to do, is if we can't help take the bag, the heavy load that's over your shoulders, that's weighing you down, that's keeping you from walking, if we can't lift that off your shoulders entirely, can we at least help you to walk with it? Can we at least help you to walk with it? And you guys, spiritually, physically, we're all broken. We're all wounded. We're all limping. And at some point, I limp more than you. And what you do is you grab under my arm and you carry me with you. And sometimes you limp more than me, and I do the same for you. And if we can't do that as a society, if we're all atomized and staring in our phones and not caring, then we're all, it's, what's it all for? So hopefully we can spend a little bit more time caring others and allowing others to carry us at times too. So thank you. <laughs> I've learned a few things over the years. Um, thank you all for coming out, seriously. I'm always delighted to see people out on a night like this to hear a wonderful spe speaker like this. So thank you, first of all, for coming. Again, tell others about our last event. Um, and by the way, I, I forgot to mention we do have almost all of next year's season booked, and it's going to be awesome. So we'll have more to say about that. Uh, I'll say a little bit about that at the next event, a little teaser. Uh, but then, Todd, also, thank you to you. Um, I knew you'd be wonderful, and you were. And here's a little gift we'd like to give you. It's a piece of granite uh, that says, with thanks to Todd Warner for bringing faith to life. Thank you so thank much, you. my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.